welcome back to Stories from the Ashes, where we pontificate on good books and the stories that define and refine us. I'm Amber, and I am here with Amanda, per usual, and our special, very special guest today, author Jerry Massey. Welcome, Jerry. Thank you. We are so glad to have you here. Your series, um, the Peabody Adventure Series and the Bracken Trilogy were incredibly influential to me in my childhood. They showed me that- Thank you. Women can be wise and strong protectors while completely retaining their femininity, and that they can be discerning, fierce protectors of the children who belong to them, and that they have their own work to do in the kingdom, quite literally, in the Bracken books, and that that work can be more than just cooking and cleaning. (laughs) And that it's important work, even if it's not flashy work that everyone is seeing. So they were doing a lot of um, behind the scenes work to save the kingdom. And as an introvert who didn't know she was an introvert, that was really a balm to my soul to know that I didn't have to be front and center all the time. I'm so happy. It's it's wonderful. I, I, there were definitely some things I had in mind when I was writing them, but, but all, you know, often readers tell me things that I don't think I was thinking about when I was writing them. Isn't that beautiful? Yes. Yeah. I just, I prayer. Yes. Yeah. I loved the, the wise women, the older wise women who were there over generations and just were able to offer their wisdom and, and knowledge of the time. <laughs> this is really funny, but it just popped into my head. We were buying um, bison from a local farmer in Iowa a few years ago, and he had worked with bringing the bison back into Yellowstone and his girlfriend had been their wolf specialist for years at Yellowstone. And then when they retired, they started this little bison farm in Iowa. And he said that the most important thing was to not call the herd every year because you have to have the older cows, to the older bison cows, to teach the younger ones what to eat and when. And that if you just have young cows, when the apples fall from the tree, they'll go and eat them and they'll get sick. And he's like, but if you have older cows in the herd, they will tell them not to eat them. He's like, when we have older cows, nobody eats the apples until the first frost. And then when the first frost hits and the starch turns to sugar, the older cows will take them to eat the apples. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? And so he said they, they always leave the older women in the herd because they are necessary for the safety of the herd. And I just, thought that was beautiful. And it just struck me that that's, that's what I was seeing in these books for these older behind the scenes, wise women who were protective of this family, this royal family in the kingdom, but behind the scenes, but they, they were keeping everybody (laughs) safe and preserving the kingdom. And I, um, I loved the, the humility that was taught in those books in the bridge, especially with the young princess who is, very headstrong and entitled at the beginning and not even recognizing the sacrifices that are being made for her and then then recognizing them were were those messages that you were yeah yes definitely yeah when um uh, i grew up in a very bad family very dysfunctional family very violent family um and after i wrote i had started writing short stories at bju press and i was you know 22 23 uh, and I was having success, and I had written Durwood, and that was successful. And I was very sad that um, I was not writing stories to people like me, as far as I knew. I was writing stories to children who were in happy homes with good parents. And in my heart, I wanted to write stories to children who were going through things 
that I was going through. And so in the Bracken trilogy, I that was where I had more freedom to depict the things that I had gone through. You do see in the in the third one, the two collars, what Kriya suffers was much closer to, you know, what the doubts I had, the fears I had. Um, so the but in the Bracken trilogy, yes, I wanted uh, I don't know if you know, I, I am now a fourth degree black belt in Taekwondo. I don't practice anymore. But at that time, I was still working towards being a black belt. But I wanted to depict that a woman not only sh- could be, but should be uh, intelligent, capable, able to meet any situation with wisdom, which sometimes is. There are one or two places where the wise woman just, you know, a keto flips somebody down a trail. And um, I did want that. And I wanted to show... Uh, that that this is a person, yes, who ages, but age was not necessarily a weakness. Although, again, in the third book, you do see that she dies. I mean, she's she's older and she dies. Um, but it was very important to me later, I found out. Later, there were children who had been abused, who uh, really loved the Bracken trilogy. And that, it's sort of like I was praying back then. I would tell the Lord, I'm tired of writing for children who have perfect families. This isn't what I, when I said I would use my gifts for you, this wasn't what I had in mind. And um, I was very sad about that. I thought I'm never going to be able to reach children who went through what I went through. And they're the ones who really need the, these stories. And then later discovered that I had reached children like that. And these stories meant a lot to them and, and really helped them. And that is really an honor. I feel like God gave me an honor in doing that. That was a, um, just a, you know an honor to do that. Yeah. So, I have a question about your Peabody series though. So first, first I would like to say, I'm very sorry that that was your experience growing up. In- I'm sorry. Yeah. For you too, as well. Yeah. It, was, it makes you what you are, but yeah, no happy memories really. Yeah. Yeah. The, the Peabody series, it has, it features a blended family. Yes. So did you, when you were writing that, were you trying to you know, right outside of the stereotypical nuclear family. Did you have experience with that? Well, BJ Press, like like all religious publishers, they have a box. They've got this box. And it has to have good, wholesome stories for children, which means the parents are always happily married to each other. The kids are happy in the family. Like they had this box. And so from the time that I went in there, I, I would say to them, you know, the purpose of preaching is to bring souls to Christ. That is not the purpose of fiction. In fact, you can argue from the Bible, you should not use a novel to bring somebody to Christ. That is actually the role of preaching. And Christ, in his preaching, used little micro fictions, the parables, but he never used them to bring about conversions. He used them to explain certain parts of what he was saying, but I, I strongly believed if you're dealing with children who are professing to be Christians, you do not need, especially all the, one after another, these stories where a kid gets saved at the end of the story. And I said, this actually cheapens salvation. We don't want to have a cheap view of salvation. And I will say to their credit, the more I spoke and the longer I spoke and pulled out Bible verses and doctrines, they actually did. Jan Joss was the person who I reported to. She, you know, she has died since then. And she um, was really a very well-read woman and a great educator. And she loved children's literature. So we all started 
they did with me often giving input, we started looking at ways to be, we, we can be in the box, but we're not in the box. But we had people over us who were going to insist, you got to be in this box. And so that was how, I, but yes, it was definitely intentional. I, I didn't want one more happy, and I didn't think I could write one more happy family story or a happy family story. I'm not sure that any stories that I wrote were, yeah, there were. There were some short stories I wrote that were happy family stories, but usually I showed some divergence from that and still showed um, young people who wanted to do the right thing because I did encounter also prejudice when I was at Bob Jones University. There was a very rampant theory at that time that if you had been abused as a child, you were going to be an abuser. And if you had come from a broken home, you were more likely to divorce your husband and actually... We know, you know, from the data that we have seen from the metrics from Bible colleges, it doesn't make any difference. You know, half of their graduates divorce. I mean, and it doesn't make any difference what what their background is. That they that we and and the fa- there is a fallacy there called the ecological fallacy, which I won't bore you with. But let me just say that theory that if you are abused, you will abuse has been thoroughly disproven, and it's based on a faulty premise called the ecological fallacy. So. I did. They let me go as far as they could let me go. But all through those stories, I was always pushing, wanting something different. Uh, but they, I was very pleased. They did agree. I did not have to write stories that would end with the child getting saved. And I was glad. I wanted to write stories about children who were Christians, who are growing as Christians, and I wanted to show their growth as Christians. Yeah, I really appreciated that. I just yeah. finished the Durwood, the first the Derwood Inc., the first book in the Peabody series. And I did really appreciate that it showed Christian children uh, just living life normally. And with I appreciate books that show Christians living as Christians without some big spiritual thing. Like it, it doesn't have to be all have the spiritual peak right. to be a good yeah. book. It can just show that there's value in living faithfully. Uh, without having to have this emotional high right. all the time. Yeah, well, and the way that, the, I don't want to peek the mic, so let me lower my voice. The way that the <laughs> Lord works with us, we tend to go a long time and things start building around us. And then we come to a like a crisis point of realization or an epiphany. And that happens. Certainly, that's such a big part of growing up. That's where growth occurs with children. And and that was something that I wanted to show just that. And, and I wanted to do more. I wanted to show Jack and Penny fighting with each other, Jack lying to Penny. And, you know, they would they. I have to tell you, Durwood was a was a process of a lot of stuff being called, and then I would have to rewrite it. it Durwood began with the Ladies Auxiliary Missionary Fellowship Annual Luncheon as a short story that they really liked and they really liked the comedy. They, you know, we did all agree that one problem with Christian fiction is there's no comedy. So one thing they really liked was the Ladies Auxiliary Missionary Fellowship annual luncheon story was there was comedy and it was going to begin the fifth grade reader. It was going to be the first story in the fifth grade reader. And then as they were talking about this novel program that they wanted to start, they wanted something that would be new and fresh and um, many, a lot of Christian fiction is pretty downbeat, and they wanted to continue this incredible. Fr- and we had, you know, Del Thompson, the greatest illustrator I think I've ever seen. I think he's better than anybody at Disney. I just think Del Thompson is an, is the is really the greatest illustrator I've ever seen. And they, you know, we've had Del Thompson, and then we had Dana Thompson, who was so great at comedy 
art. He was just just so funny. Um, so Jan Joss came to me and said, do you think you could change the Women's Auxiliary Missionary Fellowship Annual Luncheon Story to a novel? And, um, you know, I said, at that time, I could do anything. You know, at 22, I, I could do anything. So I said, sure, <laughs> let me just work on this and, and put together a storyboard. And what, uh, if, you, if you've read Durwood, you notice it seems to fall into two parts. There's yeah. the mattress store part, and then there's the, like, bootlegger history yep. part. The, I wrote the first part and put everything into it. And then they, because this had to be used with their reading program, it, it was, there were actually like teacher manual lessons on it. They needed to have a certain number of words. I forget if it was 50 or 60,000 and I wasn't there. And they said, you have to make it longer. And then I told them, well, the surest way to ruin a book is to inflate it. And they knew that. Like yeah. they, again, these were people who were very professional. Um, Jen Joss, um, uh, Joe Hall, Jim Davis, they they were very, very professional people. So they agreed. So the only thing we could think of is that I would have to add a, a piggyback story onto it. And so then I, I wrote the second part, which I don't think is nearly as strong as the first part. Um, and so that was how we did it. That was how the book was built. And, and that was what we did. But yeah, it was, I didn't realize until I wrote it, a lot of humor is based on deception. A lot of humor is based on one of the characters doesn't know what is happening, but the reader knows what is happening. And that's where you get the joke from. You're watching this person. So it's really based on one character lying to another. And you know the truth with the one who is lying. But we, you know, Jan Joss said, absolutely not. We will not put that in this book. And I think there was one place where Jack lies to Penny and gets in trouble for it. Um, but yeah, so that made the story much more slapstick because originally a lot of it was Jack lying to Penny and getting her do stuff and then it would come out and he would get punished but the powers that be over me said no and and just this for people who want to write books this is the process you you it would be wonderful if we could all write a perfect book and hand it to a publish, publisher and they would say well yeah thanks yeah. but it never works that way BJU Press probably commandeered more than other publishers would but they had a very specific vision and BJU Press has a very, very picky audience. The audience is extremely picky and in a heartbeat would drop BJU Press books. And so we did in a lot of ways had to comply with our audience. So there were times we stood up against them and I, I wrote like a whole lot of little one pagers to send to people who complained about animals talking. That was the big one. And any stories where animals talk, we would get all kinds of mail about that. Animals, it's demonic, it's satanic, you know, and so I had my ready-made, you know, here, here, send them this. And we we did that. But it was in religious publishing, I think any religious publisher in any religion walks a tightrope with with reader expectations. Mm -hmm. and, and then what genuinely will be interesting to readers. Yeah, there's a lot of different variations in uh even in within denominations, so trying to find something to fit everybody is a real big challenge. Right, we never had a book that uh, that mentioned baptism. We didn't. There, there was nowhere in oh, the yeah. books. Never. Yeah, we never even touched it. Yo. Yeah. I think so. You said that the second part you think is weaker in Durwood Inc., but Aunt Irene was my favorite character of all of them, and she was oh, in that. Part. Okay. Well, that's oh. good to hear. Good. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> And I just felt like I was getting a two for one, you know, two stories in one book. And oh, good. Well, I'm, I hope all my readers think that. I do. I hope well, they. Really I, I, do. Took, <laughs> I took a lot of pains to develop it, but it was a little difficult because it was. It had to be a full blown mystery 
but we couldn't go too far over our word limit either. So it was like I had to write this full-blown mystery, I think, in like 10,000 words. And that was challenging. That was a challenge yeah. I wanted to do. You, you can see if you're watching this that the, the spine for Darewood is thicker than the other yes. book yeah. in the series. Mm-hmm. So it, it does have that two-for-one feel. Mm-hmm. But I, I really liked the character of, well, the characters. I think my two favorite characters. So I liked Jack and Penny for being funny. But I really liked the relationship building between Scruggs and Jean. And I really felt that it spoke to the whole concept of friends or the family that you choose for yourself. And Jean was somewhat of an outsider in Jack and Penny's relationship, right? Like the younger sister and yes, and the goody goody, yes, the goody goody, and and not the glue that held you know their little pod together. And then Scruggs being from a broken right, home, the bad boy, yeah, the bad boy, the the bully character, and having experienced loss of his own, just really connecting with Jean and just there I I thought their friendship was one of the most beautiful and it really did like I had this firm belief as a kid that I could choose my own family and my friends as I grew and I was really blessed in that way so many of my friends parents completely opened their homes to me and I've spent so many holidays okay, with yeah. with different families that just took me in and made me feel like part of the clan and actually Eric my husband did not let me meet his parents until after we were officially courting because he had watched me become so close with everybody else's parents and he's like parents love you he's like if my parents fell in love with you and you didn't fall in love with me I would not be okay with you (laughs) so he waited until we were already a sure thing and then I got to meet his parents but I just I feel like this book was really encouraging to me that that was the case that you're not just bound to your blood family and you know and it wasn't a bad family for Jean like Jack and Penny were were good siblings and she had good parents but Scruggs needed somebody Scruggs needed to be able to like a you know puzzle piece click into a family and Jean was his I felt like Jean was his in well there is another Peabody book that BJU Press did not publish that I published called Hall of Heroes, which is a comedy. I don't know if you've read it or not, but Scruggs and Jean are the fe- Jean tells the story and Scruggs features prominently in that. And that book has been controversial. Um, it After the six original, I was still working for BJU Press at the time, but I believed that I had tapped pretty well the middle school ethic and I was ready to move on to young adult and and Hall of Heroes is a is a threshold book taking the reader there's still there's a lot of comedy in it and in fact I think my funniest comedy is in Hall of Heroes but there's also a a really serious very serious story in it where you know there's not going to be a happy ending for one person it's sort of a story with two endings one is happy and one is not happy and And actually, my plan was to write all the way through high school. And yeah, I was going to have Scruggs and Jean eventually get together. There would be a middle point where he would realize he was too old to be this close to her. And he goes off on his own. But in the last book, you know, she's old enough and they do. uh, uh, I even had it worked out that he's trying to rebuild a dilapidated shack into like a little home. And they sort of fall in love as she will come by and talk to him. Well, he he knows he's in love with her. And, you know, I, I wanted to do that. But Hall of Heroes, when I wrote it it, 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 again, I pushed the limits too far. And that was where we really could not agree. They wanted me to go back and 
keep writing the stuff I had written. And I honestly believe before the Lord, that was not a good thing to do. And we argued and they ultimately, they wanted me to rewrite Hall of Heroes. So I rewrote to their specifications and then they still rejected it. And that, it was at that point that I realized I've, I've really done my time here at BJU Press and I need to go and resigned. Uh, I think it was, it was probably three months later, probably wasn't right on the spot, but I resigned soon after and I'm launched out on my own. So which version did you publish? Did you publish the rewrite that you did for BJU or did you publish? I I went back to um, what I had. Well, some, you know, anytime anybody gives you comments on your book, on your writing, you really got to listen to them. You know, and this is what young people say. How do I write a book? You get your friends to read your book and you listen to what they say and then you make changes. Mm -hmm. That is so important to never criticize a friend's critique of your book. If somebody's willing to read your stuff and critique it, then just listen to them and never contradict them. Because yeah, there were things I would get in critiques where I didn't agree with it and I wanted to go do it my way. But probably 80% of what I got in critiques in terms of style, language, what was funny was valid, absolutely valid. And my books were better because people critiqued it. But with Hall of Heroes, we had a very um, sharp philosophical uh, divide that there is a character, a missionary who is dying of cancer, and she has rejected the use of narcotic painkillers because she wants to know death. She wants to experience Christ in death. And they were very offended by this. And um, uh, I did bring to them real life people who had made that decision. John Wayne, he didn't want to know Christ in death. He just didn't want to be, you know, under narcotic. Mm-hmm. But there were people and I, and then I, and they said, well, she has to write, you know, she has to say things that show that other good Christians do take narcotics in a time of death. And so I did, I wrote that in and I didn't take that out. I had her say that because I thought, yeah, some people are wacky enough that now they're going to think I'm saying, or they think it is true that everybody should do without this. And not everybody has had her experiences. So I did leave that in, but I still, yeah, in the end, I made it clear. She makes it clear. She does not want narcotic painkillers. She was taking painkillers, but not narcotic painkillers. This was in the eighties when painkillers were far less refined. And, but I wanted, I wanted that. And some people have criticized the book for being deeper life. Like this is too much of a deeper life book, which Maybe, like maybe, I don't know. I I think I told you I have a mass on my liver now that we're being tested. I'm going to find out the hard truth, I think, uh, in a few months, or I might find out the hard truth. But um, I don't know. We'll have to see. We'll, We'll just have to see. But I think I wanted to make it clear it's a Christian's right to choose for themselves their manner of death. Uh, and, and Scruggs and Jean are involved in this story. Um, but again, this sounds like such a grim story. There was a lot of comedy in the story. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that was anyway, that was the breaking point be, probably between me and BJU Press was, was that book. Like I just, I felt like I had this gift and I could write and I did not want to write what other people, uh, beyond a certain point, I couldn't write what other people were telling me to yeah. write. I believed I needed to write in good conscience before the Lord. And that is the struggle in the book, doing what the Lord tells you versus, so that was where we broke, but, but Hall of Heroes is out there and you can read it. And I hope people do. I hope everybody watching this podcast buys a copy or 10 yeah. copies. That would be good too. <laughs> 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 but it didn't get the, the notice that the other books did because it wasn't part of the BJU collection. Right. Mm-hmm. I did buy it when you told me a couple years ago that you had written it oh. and I read the first couple pages 
And I didn't think that the gene it was talking about was my gene. And so I was like, I, I can't wrap my brain around there being two okay. genes in the same town. So now that I know that it is my gene and okay. the struggles will show up. The first then- time I released it, they still own the rights to the Peabody series. So the first uh, time I released the book, it, everybody's name was changed except Gene. Okay. So it was a different Gene. But now in this release of the book, well, if you want to read the current release, send me your, just email me your address and I'll send okay. you an author's copy. And okay, you can read you. that. And maybe you'll find that more. Amanda, you'd yeah. be happy to send you guys author's copies and see. Okay. And, I, and again, I hope you like it. Some people have told me, uh, Linda Samaritini, who is a writer of Christian fiction, she told me she loved it. She noticed that it was definitely a step in an older direction than the previous books. Um, and she loved it, but I just got a really bad review on it where, you know, Guy just hated it and said it was deeper life. It was drivel. It was nonsense. And, you know, so I'm going to have to have more well-read people read it and tell me what they think. Yeah, well, we'll definitely read it. And I do, I love hearing Jean and Scruggs' end story that you had in mind. And that was what I'd always hoped for them. But at the same time, I really appreciated the fact that you had this mixed gender friend group. Yes, and people yeah. weren't just falling in love with each other and having right, questions yeah, left and right. right. And I think that's that, yeah. that's so valuable in Christian circles to show boys and girls can be friends. Yes, and boys and girls should be friends because mm-hmm. we are all part of the body and we're told right. to treat each other like siblings. And siblings are not objectifying each other. And so, <laughs> so if or you're objectifying every other. person that you come into contact with, then there's a problem. And so, I really liked the fact that they were all just able to be friends going through yes, life. Happy gang of friends. Yeah. Well, I grew up uh, again. I grew up in a very abusive home, and the boy across the street, Bruce actually looked out for me. He was one year younger and probably like 50 IQ points smarter. He was so smart. He became the chess champion of the East Coast of the United States. He was very gentle. He was Jewish, very gentle friend. And we stayed in close contact with each other through grad school for me and never did anything that was, as he says, not praiseworthy. You know, this is a guy who at 13 or 12 was looking after me, knowing I was being abused. What a wonderful, honorable person mm-hmm. he was and is, you know. So, yeah. So, but all that to just say, I had a very good friend, Bruce. We were friends all my life. We're still in contact with each other. And we never did anything that was not praiseworthy or honoring to God. And so, yes, I did. That was something I did want to put into a Christian book that not every book is a romance, not every relationship is a romance. Um, and we all do get something from the person of the opposite gender that that we are complementary. And even in a friendship, that really strengthens the bond that you both come at it with different perspectives. Yeah. So, yeah, that was important. Yeah, I think that's that's really a good point for books is not every relationship is a romance. Right. Yes. It's hard to strike that balance between... There is a time and place for romance, and that certainly is God-honoring, but not everything has to be about romance. Yeah, and never in my books. I just, I just I, there was one thing I was never going to write, romance, and, and I really don't, so. Yeah. The other message that I really liked from the Bracken trilogy was that, um, and I think this can fall into the 
abuse background and the troubled homes and everything is that females can rely on their own wits to take care of themselves when their assigned protectors have been removed. And I think that that was just like a really solid theme that I was seeing. Like the princess had protectors, right? Like she's not just a princess running around willy nilly, but she had protectors. But then there are situations where those protectors were removed from protecting her and she had to rely on herself and she couldn't just lean back on her laurels and say, well, I'll just be taken care of because I'm the princess. And so I, I appreciated that. And I'm not going to say which book or what happens, but in one of them, when the protectors are assassinated, I cried so hard, like every single time I read that book. And my mother read that book aloud to me the first time. And I couldn't even understand what was happening because she was crying so hard. (laughs) (laughs) I want to tell you, I cried when I wrote it. Yeah. That character was was you know definitely one of the most lovable characters were written and it's not like you say i'm going to create this lovable character you just start writing the character and he at that time he he was like a person to me and i was exploring his personality and showing his personality but at that time in my writing characters just came full-blown in my head it wasn't a conscious you know so I knew what he would do and and yeah and I and yeah I I cried and I thought about it a lot before I wrote it I thought because once you put pen to paper he dies and right. um yeah but I, I I do I tend to think that that particular book well I don't know each different book has its strengths but that one probably is uh just in terms of the story is probably the strongest story uh, with the most vivid characters but each you know, each book in the trilogy is doing something different. Yeah, they were really good. Which which one did you write first? Were you writing them? I wrote them in order. I wrote The Bridge when um, Del Thompson, in the third grade reader of the BJU Press books, and I don't know if this story is still in there because they are renewing their stories. There was the story of Esther in the third grade books, and the artwork was so stunning I couldn't get over that artwork, how reading this and looking at it just like slayed me. And I, and I wanted to go talk to Dell because I didn't know Dell, you know, I hardly knew Dell. And I was like, this is the most incredible artwork I, I've ever seen. And I told Jen, I wanted to write a book that had artwork like that. And I wanted it to be like a picture on every left-hand page. And I wanted it to be a simple story. And I wanted Dell to illustrate it and illustrate it the way. And I wanted it to be a fantasy with, you know, the beautiful garments and the horses and like and all that. Yeah. And I wanted it illustrated by Dell the way he had illustrated that. And Jan said, well, go ahead and write the story. And then when I wrote The Bridge, they just told me we don't have the money. It's very expensive to produce a story like that. We don't have the money. And then Stephanie True ended up being picked as the artist and not Dell, which Stephanie True was a really good artist. In that story, though, I thought Dell would have been the better choice. Stephanie did a good job. Well, she did a good job with the horses, especially. Horses are hard to do, and she did do some great horse drawings, uh, which now in the new copies, let me... Remember, these books have gone out of print and I have purchased the rights. So this is what the bridge looks like now. And it does have interior artwork, which I cobbled together from free sources. So none of the books, unless you have the original books, the artwork that we're talking about is from the original books. And you won't, apart from Durwood, Durwood has Del Thompson's original illustrations, but BJU Press would not let me take the artwork 
um, from the other books, and that is what's holding up publishing the rest of the Peabody series after Durwood. You have to have, it's a standard. Um, but anyway, let me talk about the Bracken trilogy first. So I did the bridge first. And this, you know, again, we had so many customers of BJU Press who, who thought fantasy was evil and fantasy was satanic. So if you really look at the bridge, there's no magic in the bridge. There's this ancient secret that they are like, they're not even really unraveling it because the wise woman knows what the ancient secret is, but you discover that this anthem that they sing all the time is actually telling you the ancient secret. And then they go and they do this. And that was kind of like the first step into doing, and we couldn't even call it fantasy. We had to call it fanciful fiction. And so then they said, you know, it, the bridge did very well when it first sold. Um, and they they said, you know, well, do another. And I wanted to do another, you know, so it was more, I said to them, can I do another? And they said, yes, you know, very heartily. And so then I still, you know, I wanted to keep the wise woman and a woman, uh, you know, a little princess and did Rosamund, who is more disobedient, but it's always in retrospect. You look back and you see that she drew mustaches on the color plates of the, you know, the, and that was much more, that was closer to what I considered at that time, a typical sword and gown um, fantasy story. But again, there's no magic. There's other races, but there's no dwarfs. There's no trolls. Right. You might look at certain characters and say, that would be a dwarf. And, uh, right. And here's the, <laughs> the new cover is this of Crown and Jewel, again, uh, cobbled yeah. up. And then I actually had, uh, this is where, uh, this is what surprised me pleasantly was that many of the young people reading these stories did artwork. They, they built models. They built model castles. They built, and they would send me photographs so then for Crown and Jewel, I did do a contest. I think it was $100 and 10 copies of the book to whoever could do a cover. But anybody who did any artwork, I just put it into the... So we have the Crown and Jewel fan art edition, which I thought when I sell this, 15 people are going to buy it. It's going to be the 15 people and their family. But actually, it sells pretty well, um, the Crown and Jewel fan art edition. And then Still, I still wanted to do something for children who had been through what I had been through. And then the two collars was is really definitely, yeah. And the, here it is in the in the the new, this is the new version. Um, oh yeah, and that's the yeah, there's that Stephanie True's version. Oh no. What Amber shows this is one Stephanie Stephanie True. what Amanda shows is an interim version that occurred when um some of the artwork was destroyed by water and they they got young artists to you know to do pictures for the books but you know if you look at the two collars that is definitely a story about sanctification and our our preservation in Christ and that's really clear i mean if you know understand the doctrine when you read it you see that that is what it is about and again it's a a little grimmer or a lot grimmer than the previous two but Reader, it's it's probably the least selling, and that will happen at the end of a trilogy. You you know, most of your sales are the first book, then the right. second, then the third. So, you know, I have had, again, the best reviews come from that book were by people who get it, and they really, you know, they like this, that here's a book for children that's not hitting them over the head, it's not guilting them, it's not asking them for a decision, but it is showing them this is the doctrine of belonging to Christ. And um, so, so there is a, I guess, a smaller group of readers that like it, you know, for that purpose. Well, I got PTSD 
and I lost the ability to write fiction. I can't write it anymore. And I try, I am trying. So I did think of a sequel to the Bracken trilogy that is actually The Wise Woman and a Prince, um, where he's a little prince. And actually his parents are a couple of real fops. They are like, they like being royalty. They're into, and he's just this dreamy, off the wall little kid. And so they decide they're gonna have to send him to the like the royal boarding school, like all the wealthy rich kids go to this. So they send him out in the yard. And meanwhile, the fishermen who live like a week away are coming with the season's load of fish and they come up in their wagon and they unload the wagon and they pull around to get paid. And the little boy is sitting there with his suitcases and he says, I'm supposed to go with you. And he hands them a note. And the note says, here's the money for the next blah, blah, blah. Please take care of him. And they say, oh, well, isn't that strange? Well, okay, get in the wagon. And they leave with him and they take him off to their little impoverished fishing village. And and they keep wondering, why don't the king and queen come and look at But they said, the note says, we want you to have him for a long time and try to make a man out of him. So they think, well, you know, we're only 10 now. So they, so they teach him how to fish and how to do this. And then marauders come and overrun the village and kill most of the people. And he and several of the people escape out into the fields and they have nothing. And they, and that's kind of where it stopped right now is how do they get the, how do they get the upper hand on the marauders? But it's in there that the wise woman comes in and, um, and that, you know, and that's kind of how the story turns is that he actually becomes really the man that his father is not. And, and, and they, not only do they defeat the marauders, he and the survivors, go back to the palace to say, you know, these these people have learned to navigate. It's not just a slave trade. If you remember in the original tril- trilogy, there was a slave trade. And they're saying it's not just a slave trade anymore, or it's not a contained slave trade. These people are going to come and they're going to attack us and overrun us. And they are fierce. And the, you know, ultimately, like the king doesn't want to handle it, like, you know, just doesn't want to handle it. And so the prince actually sort of becomes like the hero of the people. But it, given the state of my mind now, I haven't even put pen to paper. I did, I wrote the first sentence because I told myself, I am going to write this, I'm going to try. So I wrote actually the first line. And to me, it sounds like it has all the makings of a great story, but I don't really have that engine in my head anymore that can do it. But I'm trying, I, you know, I am trying and it's on my mind. So if you, you know, I would, I don't know, I don't know if it's God's will or not. So I don't know what to ask you to pray. But if you're moved to pray for me, I, you know, I would say, yes, please pray for me. But I want to do that. And and this block is some PTSD. Is that what uh, you're... One doctor said that he thought it was just a function of getting old. He he said that your mind changes, your brain changes, and it could just be that you're older now and your brain changed and you're not able to do it. So uh, I don't know. I wish that I could do it. I would like to be able to do it, but certainly I don't think I would ever do it. When I was younger, again, it was like I pulled stories out of the air. It was like they just came and hit me. And I often had full-blown intact stories just bang into my head and I would just start writing them. I wrote all the time, constantly. Um, yeah. And it's it's not that way anymore. Yeah. Do you have more of those stories? Tim Davis, when we spoke with him, he was saying that these island books that he wrote, he had them in the attic for like 15 years. And so I'm wondering, do you have attic books that... Yes, I have some. And some of them are actually published. Um, I have one, uh, I forget what it's called, because it doesn't sell. They don't sell. Um, I can send you a list, but yeah, Earth Dream. Oh, Earth Dreams has sold a couple. And the people who have read it, Love it. It's a, about a kid in a Christian school, and it's a little snarky. The humor's a little snarky. And his name is Bruce. I named him after my best friend, Bruce. And uh, he wins the 
the Bible drill. He, he wins the Bible drill. He is really smart. He gets hit by a car in front of the other kids in the school. And when he wakes up, he's in a different place and it's a different world and everybody's tall and they think he looks like a fox. They think he looks kind of shifty and they call him Foxface. He's the Foxface boy. And meanwhile, back, you know, back in, in our world, his mother is arguing with this doctor because the doctor has got Bruce wired up to all this stuff and she, she, he won't give her access to her son. And then another doctor who's, who's an atheist, Dr. Sorensen is the bad guy. I forget the name of the good guy doctor. She sort of gets involved and they're, and ultimately they decide that Sorensen is doing something. He's experimenting on Bruce. And meanwhile, Bruce is still back in this world, learning their language. Um, and by the way, I wrote this way before Star Trek Next Generation ever came out uh, because the <laughs> press rejected this one for being too weird he has all these adventures and at the end they steal his body from the hospital and he actually starts to come back a couple times he starts coming back and he in like by the end of his adventure he realizes he is in the pre-flood world with the, the people who still worship God as much as they know God. But whenever he, like when they talk and they say, like there's the mantle and they say the mantle will clear tonight and we'll see the lights of heaven. And they, they can like read the stars and he, he tells them there will come a star when the son of God will come. And they get like offended at that. Like, what do you mean that God's going to have a child like us and he says well you don't understand because they don't understand because they're too early in the timeline and then when he says that god's son will die they get more offended and they just say you don't you know they tell him you can't understand this you don't and he, he stops arguing with them because he understands they don't have enough light to truly know. And that was what BJ, the BJU press people said, no, they have to know. They got to know it all. And I told them they wouldn't know it all before the flood. They they would know that God would redeem them, but they're not going to, they, they, they know that somebody's going to come and crush a serpent's head, but they're not going to know anything else. And they said, no. It, and again, the book went the whole rounds. You know, they couldn't just reject it outright because everybody wanted to read it. So they all would read the book and then they would reject it and that's called earth dreams and um that's out and it did get good reviews from some test reviewers but i don't have any means to to advertise the books it costs so much to advertise the books and i, don't, I just don't have that type of money so earth dreams and then i can't remember you tell me about the myth of the llama i'm not it's familiar with that one with three books that a llama farmer wanted me to write <laughs> and uh, the only one that that I that. That, that made it back to publication after they failed, after they totally failed for her, uh, she gave me the rights back. And Del Thompson did do the cover for Myth of the Llama. It's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, it is. The book is inferior. It's you know I would consider that's a book, a, a slapdash book. I put out. It, if people read it, it doesn't bother me. But I don't think there's anything in the book. It's just you know a boy has a fantasy adventure with a llama. <laughs> I love the review on Amazon. It says, I read this book as a kid. It's very fun children's fantasy with a lot of heart and imagination. And it's something unique too. How many fantasy books do you see about llamas? Right. As far as I know, this is the only one. <laughs> I, I think it, after that, Is Your Mama a Llama came out, but I think mine was first. Um, so yeah, I'm glad that's a nice review. It is, it is a, it's a fun dash through fantasy 
And especially if you read fantasy books, you see Baba Yaga shows up, but it's not, I don't think even in the writing style, it was my best writing style. I was in a hurry to get these books finished for her. Each one had to be 30,000 words. And so I was rushing and I did it and um, got it out. So yeah, if you, you know, if you have the extra, I don't know what it costs, $9, $10, you can I think it's $7.98. Okay, so about $8. I'll have to send this to you. I wrote one about a girl who is in an abusive, it's her uncle and aunt that are taking care of her and her uncle is abusing her and she, she shaves her head and masquerades as a boy and it's her survival story as she's trying to get to her mother and on the way to getting to her mother, she falls through the top of a cave, like a sinkhole that leads into a cave and she's injured and an Armenian woman pulls her out, Nala, and nurses her back to health. And there is a Christian, all through it, there's sort of like this Christian, oh, the fittest. That's what it's called, the fittest. In several points of the story, as she's, like, she has to steal from gardens and stuff. Uh, there's one point where she's in a shed and she can hear the people right on the other side of the shed. And it's, I think it's a father and a son. And they're, it is a, it's a very loving conversation of a father trying to lead his son. And she's, you know, feeling this isolation that she's, you know, she's completely cut off from the world. And she meets both mean people and kind people in this odyssey of hers. And then Nala takes her and Nala is just horrified. Oh my goodness, you shaved off your hair. What were you thinking? What could be that bad? And then she tells her like the stuff her uncle was doing. And then Nala says, oh, you're a wicked man. Oh, you're so wicked. Like she just kind of fusses, but Nala has got a very strong sense of right and wrong, and she's an Armenian Holocaust survivor. And that I, I think if you've read the BJU reading books from that, from having researched that story, and again, that novel was rejected by BJU Press because the girl dresses as a boy and passes as a boy, even though, again, Nala gives this complete, you know, um, she doesn't really blame the girl. She right. she she just notes that this is what happens in a world filled with sin. And when the young girl again puts on women's clothes, even she feels like this is more appropriate. This is better. This is just a better way to live. And uh, I guess I won't tell you the end. Obviously, her uncle is chasing after her, so I won't tell you the ending of the book because that way nobody would buy the book and I'd stay this for. So, um, so I won't tell you that. So. Um, but yeah, the fittest. I, I believe I published that. Maybe I didn't publish it. I did publish Earth Dreams. That's right. Maybe I didn't publish the fittest. Maybe I need to. I don't know. So <laughs> I, I, when when publishing it, you know, publishing is now free. When I was in my twenties and thirties, it cost you a couple thousand dollars at least to publish a book, and then you had no marketing. Now it's free. You just put that manuscript into. Amazon and you know it's free. So I do have I have Stephen Joe was another series I wanted to do where Steve is the cousin, Joe is a traditional typical fundamentalist and Steve is her atheist cousin who is brilliant. At, he's he's older. She's like 13 and he's 17 or 18 and every time he builds a contraption to do something that they need it works, but it works the wrong way, which is kind of like the reflection of his atheism. So like in the beginning, the mom's complaining because she has real full hair and she can't get a blow dryer to work. So he devises, he builds her an in-counter blow dryer, but he puts the fan in backwards. So it sucks her head down onto the countertop <laughs> instead of blow drying her hair. So it's like that, like everything, He, but he's very protective of Joe and he wants to, he wants to, uh, Joe's always getting into trouble and he wants to help her and he wants to be a good nephew to his aunt and uncle because his own parents don't care about him. So like, uh, and I did write the first 
the first of that, but it's so outdated now because it was when the internet was new and it relies too much on the internet being so new. Like the whole story would have to really be rewritten. And that, I talked with the people at BJU Press about that, but basically it, you're getting, I was getting into young adult there and they didn't want to cross that. Did they ever go into young adult? I don't think BJU Press has ever done I young adult. They had a few books. There was one that was about a girl who went into photography and her mother had passed away and her dad was marrying someone new. Um, Nye, N-Y-E. That was the author of that one, I believe. Oh, Julie Nye? Yeah. And who wrote Scout? Was that? Was it? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure that she also wrote this one. I could be okay. mistaken. Well, I've got to tell you, Scout to me was the children's book of all that. And Scout was really good. I, I love that book. spoke to a children's group and the teacher said, which one of Jerry Massey's book is your favorite? And they all yelled, Scout! <laughs> I said, well, kids, I didn't write Scout. <laughs> so I said, well, I'll, on. I'll, I'll pass that on to her that she's your favorite. Yeah. yeah, but yeah. it was tremendous, yeah. tremendous book. It really was. I'll have yes. to loan it to you, Amanda. It's really okay. good. <laughs> um, so, okay. So Julie and I wrote this about the photography. I believe so. Yeah. She was definitely a teenager. It was, she was more like 16 and okay. having more older girl emotions. I just remember that like I wasn't allowed to read that one when I was younger. I had to wait until I was older to read it. So I feel like it was definitely over into the YA. Okay, yeah, and the young adult, yeah. For that. So you say that like publishing is free with Amazon's yes. print on demand now. So you have the rights to the rest of the Darewood yes. books. Yeah. Tell us what you need. <laughs> what is in the way of you publishing the rest of the series beyond book one is well, it right now an illustrator or covers or yeah both? The, well of course right now like I said I have a mass on my liver and mm -hmm. I really don't know you know how long my life is going to be right now I feel good um my digestion is good but I just don't know because we don't know yet if it's cancer and if it's cancer how bad the cancer will be so I need time because what you end up having to do is you have to you, you buy a copy of the of the original book and then you have to rip out all the pages and feed them through a PDF maker and then right. put them all together, convert them over to Word. Oh yeah, so I need Adobe my Adobe ran out. I need the next the next with and those are like a thousand dollars. I mean that's a lot of money. Uh, but the biggest thing is the illustrator. I need a cover illustrator and I need interior art for interior art and I say $2,000 per book. It's probably closer to three, and that would be the cheapest. Market rate is six. So mm -hmm. these books don't make that much money. It's, it's, it is it's a losing bet for me to try to invest. And I, I couldn't even afford to do it, but I, you know, I could start on them. I know that uh, the first one, A Dangerous Game, has to be rewritten. Um, there's, it's too sad and it's too grim. So I want to have the same basic story, but I, I need to get it more um, in compliance with the rest of the books. It needs no, to be. No, 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 no. <laughs> I liked how sad and grim it was because it fit for Scruggs' life. Oh, for like, Scruggs. It was appropriate for Scruggs. And I felt like each of these books was a look into like how that person yeah, yeah. really was. Yeah. And how so it deals with each one of them. Don't flowers and no i'm not going no it would still be the same story but it does need a little bit of lightness well plus it's too short it's yeah. um let's see the i the ideal length is courage by darkness that's the ideal length and if you put you see the difference it's just a little too short let's face it 
if I'm going to charge people nine or ten dollars for a book because my books are expensive, I need to give them a full book. And mm-hmm. uh, with the ch- the prices that I charge for the books, some of that is unavoidable because Amazon's engine. If the book is below a certain length, it's still going to be the same price as if as if it was up to a certain length. So I am looking at that, but I would certainly wouldn't change a dangerous game significantly. But I just need to add a few more light touches to it. And I, and the artwork, well, the artwork needs to change because I want a skinny Scruggs. I, Dale did this artwork, and I was not happy with it. And he said, "I'm tired of drawing skinny kids. We have fat kids in life. Get real. Get used to it. Some kids are fat, overweight, heavy." <laughs> And but I always did imagine that Scruggs was 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 like almost emaciated looking. Yeah, and um, he definitely thinned down for yeah, a bandit. Yeah, yeah, because Dell did that. Uh, Dana did that one. Dana yeah. did that cover. So um, if you really, if you wanted a pudgier kid, Jack was what, and Jack Enderwood is rounder. And I did yeah. think that Jack would be more that way. Yes, he's he's. You see this, you know. Pudgy kid, and that is Jack. Jack is easygoing. He loves yeah. the good things in life, and I feel like that did fit Jack, but it didn't fit Scruggs. Um, and the hot chocolate and soft pretzels, and yes. that would be chubby too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A diet of, of soft pretzels and hot chocolate will bulk you up. Yes. yes. <laughs> so, so that, but yeah, it's the cost. The cost in total to redo these. Is it? It's it's five after Durwood. It's five additional books. So we're talking about twelve to $15,000. And that's even a lot for a GoFundMe. Like I, like I thought, do Kickstarter, but what could I give to people? All I could give them is copies of the books. I could sign them. And so that is really what's in the way. And, you know, we'll just have to see if the Lord will, you know, open that door. But I also have to tell you, it is very time consuming. It would, yeah. it would take me, well, like a Christmas vacation, you know, over a Christmas vacation, I could bring these, you know, back. And I am very touched and so honored that people, again, after 40 years or 35 years, people want these books and, and I do want people to have them, but I don't know how to come up with $15,000. And I have willed my books to a person who loves my books. Um, but I don't know how she would find the time, even if she had the money. This is, again, for me, this is just such an uncertain time. I won't know probably for a few more weeks, whether I have cancer or not, what's going to happen. And yeah, I, I'd love to leave the world with the benefit of my opinion on everything in my books, you know, I mean, I'd love to, to do that. So, so I don't know what to, I don't know what to ask of people at this point. If you have any wealthy viewers and they say, oh, $15,000, that's pocket change here. Have 50, I'd take it and I would dedicate it to the use of getting the artwork. But for the artwork, I want Dell or Dana Thompson. I, I, I do. And I know Dell is still doing art. Dana uh, actually works for a company that produces cartoons and stickers. Last I heard, he may be retired. So I don't know if Dana even sits down and does artwork anymore, or if it's a benefit to him in any way to do artwork. Like, I don't know. But I have to tell you, good illustrators are hard to find. They are very, very. And when I opened up the Crown and Jewel book for illustrators. I didn't even get a lot of entries, but there are people who can do beautiful landscapes, but they can't do animals. And there are people who can do landscapes and animals, but they can't do people. And there are people who can do landscapes, animals, and people, but they can't do hands. The hardest thing, hands. So when you want a a cover illustration that is 
like this quality. I mean, that is a, that's an excellent cover illustration. Yeah. You need an illustrator who can do landscapes, animals, people, hands, faces, perspective, mm-hmm. everything. But children expect artwork. They expect four. They expect four pieces, at least four. And in Durwood, we had a lot more, I think 12. So, so that's the plan. So do you yeah. have a solution? Are either of you artists by any chance? I'm not, but we will definitely be thinking about it and praying about it and asking the Lord to open some doors for getting this whole series back because I think that it really touched a whole generation and I think that it can just just as well touch another generation. Thank you. I I hope so. I mean, the 15-year-old has read through all of the ones that I have. There's a couple of the series that I don't have. And she actually, she thought that we only were missing one until she saw the picture that I put on Facebook of all the covers. And she's like, we're missing two of them. And I'm like, I know, tell me about it. This is the bane of my existence in my library. Well, <laughs> you don't find them on Ex Libris or? They're like $80. Oh, right. Yeah. They charge. Yeah. 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 Like yeah. people, people that love the books are holding on to their copies. And right. so yeah. they just aren't coming up for resell. So people, I, I just get so frustrated with people that are like, oh, I found mine for 50 cents. I'm like, well, good for you. <laughs> and, it's, and it's in brand new condition too. I know. Yeah. I was yeah. like, yes. like, why don't you just brag a little about it? Yeah, we'll be praying about getting those books back in. And I'm just going to keep recommending them to people for when they do find them out there for 50 cents. I want them to know to grab them. Yes. And- yeah. Yeah. We have, they could probably, they can get them that cheap. They could probably resell them on Amazon for at least <laughs> nine or $10 and, you know, make a real profit. But yeah. it is telling about the state of commercial Christian fiction that's that these books still hold up because we don't have enough yeah. Christian fiction. I mean, let's face it. I, I stopped writing Peabody series by the time I was 28. You know, that was as mature as my writing got. And yet people are still reading them and, you know, and, and recommending them to their children. Yes. Because I feel like there's, there's not anything. Left. Again, we're stuck in a rut of trying to present perfect children in books being read by imperfect children and you you have to show the imperfections uh, yeah the the christian audience is a difficult audience and sadly a lot of christian fiction is um uh, it just uh poof it's just it's drivel it's you know it's yeah. of course i i, about I agree books, i was right? i was really we we did bob jones curriculum until third grade and then we switched over to abeka but we always bought the books. Like every oh, year at Christmas, they were on sale. For, I think like five dollars. I mean, the books. Time. Yeah, the like like your books. Oh, okay, the novels. Okay. Yeah, the light line books. And so my my parents, that was something I was really grateful for was they always bought us these books for Christmas. And so we I read through the majority of them. And then after I got older and moved out and started like going to the Christian bookstore, I realized what a treasure trove they had been because the stuff at the Christian bookstore was kind of just garbage like it wasn't worth my time or effort and it just didn't tell a good story and then over the years I've just been really disappointed that I haven't really been finding that and so I was really grateful when Andrew Peterson wrote the wing feather saga because that's beautiful fiction and it's not blatantly Christian but it's very clearly all the tenets of the Christian faith and yes, yeah. resurrection stories. And then S.D. Smith, Sam Smith, he wrote the Green Ember series and those are very faith-filled and good, clean that. fantasy fun. But then he and his son, Josiah, just wrote a book that's releasing in November. And it's called 
Jack Zulu, Zulu. and it's so good. Like, it gives me hope for the future. Oh, good. I hope so. Yes, yeah, I I hope so. It has what you were talking about, about kids that are already Christians, just living their Christian faith. And it, it is fantasy. It's very clearly fantasy. Like, there's traveling amongst realms and things of that nature. But these are just, like, good, strong Christian kids walking out their faith and relying on it in the troubles that they hit. And I'm, I'm really excited to see where this series goes. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's just, there's not a lot. So I think that the <laughs> the good stuff from the 90s can just be tweaked a little and edited to make it just as current for now. And Right, yeah, you just need to update. Yeah, and all the books need it. And I, I even, up, I mean, I updated uh, The Bridge, Crown and Jewel. In Crown and Jewel, she, she got a dog that she gave away. Now I have dogs. I changed that. She doesn't give the dog away. She used to the dog because you, you know, who would give away a dog? And so, yeah, there was some, I did a little bit of tweaking and all, obviously, because your writing style matures and you see things and, you know, you put in fixes. And in Durwood, I don't know that you're going to want to put this in your podcast because some of your readers may be upset, but I removed spanking. Um, I just, oh, that's so good to hear because I was. Amanda brought that up yesterday. I brought that up. I was like, it has spanking in it. I was like, I don't even remember that. <laughs> and then she like sent me some <laughs> draft. And we were going to talk to you. We were going to be like, could you take that out, please? <laughs> they, they made me put it in because you, yeah. you can't raise your kids like a Christian unless you hit them. And so they wanted me to acknowledge that it's one of the places where Jack, I think it's the one place where Jack lies or something. And and she just, Penny just says, dad spanked him. And then when I read that, I thought, you know, I, I got to tell you, I can't say I've never had children. So yeah, let, I've also never been married. So let me give you my advice on marriage and children, right? So <laughs> I have to say, I can understand if you're a parent and you have a child who deliberately bullies another child in the family. Because I did, I had friends, their four-year-old would just smack their two-year-old. And the mom was just like, she didn't know what to do. So she would spank her. Okay, I get that. Like, I, maybe, I don't know, maybe if I were wiser, I wouldn't do that. Or maybe I would do that and say that's the only but thing you can I do. Speak to that. So I grew up in a home that spanked regularly. And when I grew up, I'd read all the parenting books that the Christian body was putting out. And that was the tool in my toolbox. Like, I thought you spanked your kids. Mm-hmm. Eric was not spanked growing up, but he was willing to accept the fact that I had done all the research. And this was something I felt strongly about. So much to my great sorrow, we spanked our eldest daughter. And not frequently, definitely not in the way that I had grown up. But like, that was the thing that we resorted to if we thought she, you know, we couldn't think if I didn't know what else to do, because I didn't have other tools in my toolbox yet, right? Because they don't teach you other things. Like there's always this, you know, you can do X, Y, and Z. But if it gets to this point, there's nothing else and you have to spank them. And when I decided to stop spanking, I went to Canadian authors because it's illegal to spank your kids in Canada. And I was like, they really don't have that point. They don't have that point where they're like, if they get to this point, you have to spank them. I'm like, I want to know what to do here. Okay. I want to know what to do at this point. And so I found a book called uh, Discipline Without Distress, and it just changed our lives. But Eric and I had been doing a ton of research and studying the Bible and God's word and looking at, you know, the verses about like the rod of correction and all the things that they throw at you and realizing like a shepherd doesn't use his rod to hit his sheep. He uses his rod to guide his sheep and the sheep trust the rod and feel safe around it. And you feel safe around something that's hitting you. And so we had our second child. And what, what was really pivotal for us is Gemma was born with sensory processing disorder. And so if she tried to reach for an outlet and we slapped her hand, she couldn't feel it. Like she would look at us like, did you just swipe at me? Like, I'm not really sure what just happened here. And we realized like if we wanted her to feel it, 
we would have to hit her to a point that it would very clearly be abusive. And we weren't doing that. So we were just like, well, what do we do? And that's when we started like researching and saying like, is this a biblical thing really? Or is this just what we were told was? And oh, where was I? Oh, so the first thing after we had stopped spanking Inara for a month, we told Eric's parents, you know, oh, just by the way, we stopped spanking the kids. And my father-in-law said, I could tell because Inara doesn't hit Gemma anymore. Oh, like, oh, you're right. Like her aggressions towards her younger teachers hitting vanished. When we stopped hitting her, she stopped hitting Gemma. And that's one thing I will say for my kids. Like I have, you know, kids on the spectrum and they're just a little extra sometimes, but they don't hit each other. Like we've never had violence against siblings as an issue because that's not something that's been modeled for them, which, yeah, is just... Well, so yeah. So that being said, I decided whatever Jack did in the story, I don't. I, he told a lie, and in the end, the bed broke, or, or something fell on the bed and broke the bed. It was didn't merit a spanking in anybody's book, and so I just took it out. And wow. I and I did think I don't think spanking is this big necessary thing. And yeah, I have a lot of doubts about it. You know, and hearing you say that just makes a lot of sense. Like I said, I don't have children. I'm 62. I, you know, I don't think I'll ever have children, and so. Yeah. Uh, except the children who I have in Christ, you know, who, again, who I'm responsible to. And so I'm, I'm, I'm actually looking at the text right here of when you had spanking in the book because Amanda sent me screen grabs. Oh, okay. So it's in chapter eight, things that never happened to Amy Bell. And it says, dad spanked us both for what we did. We saw it coming as soon as we walked into Sergeant McKenna's living room and heard the story. And oh, his eyes that we weren't sorry. And that always merits a spanking in our family. But they were right. Like they were right they to actually not right. be sorry. Yeah. It was a misunderstanding. And that was one of the big things that got Eric and I talking about like, is spanking even the right choice was we were realizing that a lot of times when we would, when our first inclination would be to spank Anara, if we stopped and talked with her for like an extra 15 minutes, we often realized that there was a miscommunication going on Mm -hmm. and that her intention was not one that warranted a spanking. It warranted education and training of just conversing with her and letting her know what life was like. And, And in this one, like Jack and Penny did not deserve a spanking in that situation. They had done the right thing, maybe the wrong way, but like their intentions were good. They did not need to be sorry. Well, they yeah. stole a mattress. And I think, again, the idea of the people who said they had to be spanked was no matter what, stealing the mattress was wrong, mm-hmm. um, which I, I see that. But again, yeah, I don't look at this. If you have two ditzy kids who think that the people at the mattress store are international spies, you really need to sit down and have a talk with them. But to yeah. but spank Jack had to pay for I, it. Like, that's my thought. Like, Jack paid for it. Paid that's for it. Yeah. proper yeah. restitution. And the spanking is just this bonus. Right. Yeah. People grow on because well i took it out it's out now so i took it out and uh, and i think that's the only place um but yeah i i have to say that in that culture hitting is such a it's such a first resort and 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 again i'm a fourth degree black belt i've learned all about and hit anything (laughs) any way you want even now when i'm older and I have to say that you, you really learn that once you start getting in the higher levels of martial arts. If you hit, you're going to get hit. Like if you, mm-hmm. you, like you eventually realize it's so interesting that what hitting accomplishes is a temporary fix, but you've just made the problem worse. You, mm-hmm. you do actually learn that once you're, you know, in a higher level of martial arts and you're reading the history of what has gone on with martial arts and martial study. 
that violence never actually solves a problem. It, it's a stopgap. And sometimes, yeah, you, you have to, you know, the guy's drunk and waving a sword around, so you clunk him one. <laughs> but he's still got a drinking problem, and he's still got a sword. So you've got to solve those problems now. And, um, and that's, yeah, that's the issue. Yeah. So, yeah. It, it's really good to hear that you didn't want it in there in the first place, because it seemed out of place. It mm-hmm. seemed like... Yeah, that's, a, that's definitely an editorial inclusion. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it seems like they actually had more constructive methods of discipline otherwise, except right. for that yes. random spank. Yeah, Good. well, we appreciate that. And, and I just want to acknowledge for our listeners that we understand that it's a very heated topic and that people are at different places in their journey and different life experiences. But we do encourage you to look into gentle parenting and um, some study of the rod of correction as a tool of comfort instead of a tool of reproach. And and I will just- add to your Bible commentary on that, wherever the Bible says to, uh, you know, whip, you know, whip the lad, whip the boy, <clears throat> whip a child, it's always in the masculine. It's always talking about a male. So the Bible never tells you to hit a daughter. And it's always talking about a lad, not a two-year-old child or a four-year-old child. And if we read the Old Testament, we see what these lads got up to, raping neighbors, setting neighbors' crops on fire. This is really what Solomon is is talking about. And all of those verses only come from Proverbs, which again, when you, you know, we don't see anything in the Torah the five books of the law, which are the weightiest books of the Old Testament, we don't see anything in the major prophets or minor prophets saying you need to get out there and hit your kids. It's all Solomon who had all these wives and all these kids that he wasn't raising. And and <laughs> it's only proverbial, which means it's not really a command. It's a proverb. It's something that people are supposed to sit around and talk about, but they're always directed basically what we would call hoodlums. Not not your five or six year old who spills their milk or doesn't know their homework. It's it's not that. It's and again, people have people with violent natures and violent inclinations. That's the only thing I can say is they they read it through their own violence and then they make it part of their violent culture. But it's not. It is really not fitting. And again, if you look at Jewish families, they don't beat their children. They they don't. It's not in their culture to do that. They they love their children. So yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I think that was one, a little bit of some of the error that we learned uh, growing up in that culture. Yeah, I agree. Well, thank you so much for your time, Jerry. It was really nice talking about these books. And we really hope to be seeing more of the Peabody series coming back into print. I hope so. I, I do hope so. We're glad that the Bracken Trilogy is available to buy. And we will be linking all of these books that we've talked about in the show notes. And we appreciate everybody's time listening. And we hope that some of these harder topics have just gotten you thinking about some different things and uh, an ability to see into somebody else's experience. And that's what this is about. It's about our stories and where they come from. And stories are truer than true. Have a good week. <laughs>